So this morning we're going to continue in the series, Ask God Anything, where you've been submitting questions as part of this series. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. That's where we're going to start here in just a little bit. We'll get there. But continuing in the series, answering questions that you've submitted. Can't get to all of them. Uh, never planned to get to all of them. Some of the ones that you've turned in that really doesn't fit well into a Sunday morning. Maybe it's just a quicker answer. Maybe there's not an answer. <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're using those in our podcast. We just started a little over a week, uh, a little over a month or so ago. It's called Chasing the Rabbit. If you haven't checked it out yet, uh, be sure to do that. There's some info in your, uh, in your newsletter. I think it's on the back page. Uh, so our goal for that is for us as five, um, five pastors, that's about a 20-minute podcast, and uh, the first half of it, we just kind of hope brings a little smile to you, adds a little joy to your day, and then the second half is more instruction where we're dealing with some of these questions. So be sure to check it out if you haven't, and uh, uh, we hope, uh, hope it's a benefit for you. But on Sunday morning, since really the first of the year, just about the second Sunday of the year, we've been working through this series, Ask God Anything. There have been some really good questions that you've asked. Uh, you've asked some really hard questions, and uh, ones that are really driving us deeper. I, I've I've loved preparing for these messages because the questions have been so good and it's, it's really steered us towards scripture to try to answer those. So this morning is no different and uh, I wanna just go ahead and jump right in and, uh, and deal with this question that was submitted. Probably one of the first ones we got, it was submitted back in December on December 10th, just after we started really promoting this series. And, uh, and so it's a great question. Let's go ahead and read this question and then we'll begin to move through the answer from God's word. So uh, it says, the person who wrote it again anonymously, says, I was recently asked by my brother, who I believe to be unsaved, why should he place his trust in the Bible when there are many contradictions? I believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God with some differing words scribed by mortal men. I also believe that there are inconsistencies and even contradictions. However, I also believe the message is clear and unambiguous when everything is viewed in context. What would be an appropriate response when I'm accused of making excuses for the mistakes in the Bible? That is a great question. And I'm curious, just as I did in the first service, I'm curious how many of you have ever had a question like this asked of you, maybe not of those exact words, but something that has called into question the Bible. Let me just see your hand real quickly and keep it up. Just look around for a second, kind of wave those hands, get a little movement to it, right? I mean, there's a lot of people in here that have had this question asked of you. And I'd be willing to say that probably for a lot, you were number one, caught off guard. Number two, you didn't quite know what to say. Well, this morning, that's what we're going to deal with. We're going to talk about this issue. Is there any legitimacy to those who would make claims like this regarding Scripture? And, uh, and then, if, if not, what should our response ultimately be? There, there are a few moving parts here. One is a lack of trust in the Bible, right? And, and anybody who's ever asked you this question, you know, why do you believe in the Bible? Or what do you do about all the inconsistencies? How do you reconcile the contradictions? Anybody who asks that, those kinds of questions are asking them because they have a lack of trust in the Bible, a lack of trust that is probably different than yours, right? You trust Scripture. I mean, you read it. You come to a church where it's proclaimed, where it's preached, where it's taught, right? So you have a level of trust there. You may have wondered about some of these questions yourself, to be honest, never verbalizing them. Maybe there's been some questions in your own walk about, man, that doesn't seem to fit. How does, how does this fit? What do I do about this? But more often than not, those who are asking those questions outside the walls of the church have a lack of trust in the Bible. They have a lack of trust in Scripture. The other moving part is, is what do we do about these perceived 
inconsistencies and contradictions. What is up with those? What are they? Uh, how do we handle them? How do we address them? And then how do we explain that to somebody else? That's, that's going to be the focus today. So why is this important? There are a lot of reasons why this is an important issue for you. There's a lot of reasons why you should really pay attention, take a few notes today, because one of the reasons is that for many, their eternity is at stake. They're not willing to trust in a savior named Jesus. They're not willing to pursue a relationship with God because they don't feel like they can trust the word that bears his name. And they've heard people like us call this God's word and yet in their heart they have this feeling that there are inconsistencies, there are contradictions, there are things that they can't trust. And so along with that, they then don't trust God either. That's why we have to be able to explain and to answer questions like this when they come to us because their eternity is at stake. Another reason this is important is because of what Jesus believed about the scriptures. Now for him, it was the Old Testament. He was living the New Testament, and then after he ascended back to the Father, the New Testament would be written. But when Jesus dealt with the Bible, it was the Old Testament. And he believed that the Old Testament was God's word. Whenever he would speak or whenever he would quote from the Old Testament, he treated it as authoritative. He treated it as if it was God's word literally and as, it was God, as if it was God's word specifically. And so it's important because, one, a lot of people aren't going to trust God until they can trust his word. But number two, because Jesus... Jesus's testimony is at stake here not to mention the fact that God's own trustworthiness is is, is in play because of that again if they don't trust his word they're not ultimately going to trust him so what do we mean by that term the Bible what are we referring to let's just be clear let's define the terms to start when we're talking about the Bible we're talking about the 66 books Old Testament and New Testament 39 in the old 27 in the new and when you put all of those books together, books like Genesis and Exodus and books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, books like Matthew, Mark, and like 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelation, all of those books, when you put them together, they form what we call the Bible. Now, every one of those books, all 66 of them, when you open up this Bible, right, and you begin to pull them out piece by piece, it's like taking a, a, a diamond, holding it up to the light, giving it just a little bit of a turn, and looking at all the different facets of that diamond right you see a little bit of a different facet of that diamond when you turn it this way and then you turn it a little bit more do you see a different facet when you hold it up to this light or that light the bible is the same when you pull out the individual books they each show a unique facet of who God is why because it is God's word to us and when you read it in Genesis when you read it in Leviticus when you read it in Psalms when you read in the Gospels when you read in the letters that Paul wrote or even in the very end when you begin when you read and you pull out those individual books you see a different facet ultimately of who God is so what does the Bible say about itself the Bible says that it is God's word passage I had you turn to, 2 Timothy. If you take a look at this passage specifically, you'll see, and I'm just going to pull out a couple of them, but what you find here is that Scripture speaks about itself, and when it does, it says that it is God's Word. Look at what it says here, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17. It says, all Scripture, that Scripture is capitalized, all Scripture is inspired by God profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work so it says in verse 16 that all scripture is inspired in the Greek language whenever Paul wrote that to Timothy that word inspired is a Greek word that means it was God breathed 
And so what Paul is telling us here in that passage, he is saying that the Bible as we have it, right, is, is breathed of God. It is God's word. That is a way to, to affirm and to communicate that this is God's word to us, written through people, but it is no less God's word to us. Here's something kind of interesting. Go back one book to 1 Timothy. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, <clears throat> notice what Paul writes here to Timothy. 1 Peter 5 verse 18. He says, for the scripture, there it is, capital, capital S again. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, you're probably thinking, what on earth does that verse have to do <laughs> with, uh, with, with the Bible being God's word? Don't think about the context. There's a context that Paul's writing about there. We're not going to deal with that right you know, today. But what I want you to notice here is that in that passage, when he says, for the scripture says, Paul quotes two different passages. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. And then a separate passage, the laborer is worthy of his wages. One of those passages is found in the gospel of Luke, right? So Paul is calling scripture what Luke wrote. The other passage is all the way back in Deuteronomy. And what Paul is calling scripture is what Moses wrote all the way back in Deuteronomy. So if you were to pull Paul up here, say, Paul, have a seat, take a glass of sweet tea, I got a question for you. Hey, do you think that scripture is God's word? He's gonna say yes, and I proved it in that one verse. I treated the gospels as though they were God's word, and I treated Moses' words as they were God's word. I mean, yes, Paul would have affirmed that. So scripture says about itself that it is God's word. What we want to establish today specifically is why we can trust in it and then what those implications are ultimately for our lives. So here, here's some underlying, there's some underlying issues to this whole conversation. I, I love the fact that somebody asked this question because it, it really kind of dredges up and it pulls up a lot of moving parts. One of those is the issue of authority. See, when somebody says to you, more often than not, when they say to you, listen, how can you believe the Bible? It's just full of, in, it's full of contradictions, right? Most of you raise your hand. You've had that question raised to you. When somebody says that, one of the best things you can say to them, well, can you give me an example so that we can talk about it, right? We're gonna look at some examples here in just a moment. Can you give me an example? More often than not, when someone says that the Bible is full of contradictions, they can't really produce one. They've heard it on some ABC, you know, 2020 special right before Easter. You know, they've heard some bad preacher, right, preach about it because there are some pastors and churches that don't hold to the authority of God's word being without error, right? They've heard some horrible teaching or preaching or some, again, television special. They read some article, and so they've just always believed that, you know what, so everybody else says that it has a lot of contradictions, so that's what I believe but they can't really produce one necessarily. Now, I'm not saying be snarky. I'm just saying expect that. They're probably not gonna be able to produce one for you because here's what the underlying issue is. For many, many people, most people who say that the Bible is full of contradictions, they can't bring one to mind. They don't know one to, to use specifically as evidence because that's not even the issue. The issue is they don't want the authority of God's word in their life to begin with right? Because when we then admit that God's word is what it claims to be, that it is God's word to us, suddenly it is in a position of authority over us. 
not his word as much as him right he's communicated himself through his word and what often happens you saw this in Luke 16 when Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus who died and uh, the rich man went to uh, went to Hades right separated from God Lazarus went to Adam uh, Abraham's bosom right a reference to heaven and Jesus lays out this story many would say it was true some say it was a parable but uh, he's telling the story and, and there's this picture of the man who's in Hades separated from God and he says would you just send some of our some someone to go back to my brothers to tell them to, to to not come to this place right to be right with God would you somebody just send somebody to them and it's interesting because in the story what Abraham says to him he says even if we were to send somebody back from the dead they wouldn't believe you know what that was saying is the issue was not evidence the issue was a hard heart they didn't want the position of God's authority over their lives and many times when people say the Bible's just full of contradictions, they don't really know one. They, don't necessarily, they can't really produce one. They've never really heard of one in particular. But the, the driver is they don't want the authority of God over their lives. Here's the thing. If you do hold to God's word as being very, uh, exactly that, the, the very words of God, then there's a second thing in play, not just his authority, but your submission, right? Because if we believe this book is what we claim it is, most of us in this place would say, yep, I'll hold up God's word, right? I could have you hold it up and you know, recite some little phrase, whatever. This is God's word. If you did that, you probably believe it. The bigger issue for us is are we, are, are we submitting to it? Are we living it out? And then even beyond that, are we disciples of Jesus studying that word, right? So that we can learn more of who God is, so that we can live it out in our lives as salt and light in this world. So there's a lot of moving parts here specifically, right? It's authoritative. Our role is to be submissive. Our role is to dig in and to study it like a disciple because we are followers of Jesus. So let's break down the question here again. Let, let's break it up again. Let's go to the second slide if we can. This was a long question. This is what I want us to focus on. <clears throat> so it says, uh, let me look through it. There you go. That's the one that I'm, that I'm wanting. So the person says, I believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God with some differing words scribed by mortal men. I also believe that there are inconsistencies and even contradictions. Let's just keep that up there for a second. Keep that up there. I'm pointing like you can see that one back there. Keep that one up there, okay? And over there while we're at it. So it's interesting to me. I, I completely appreciate the question. I have no idea who submitted it. But I think it's, it's important for us to note, right, remember the context of this question. I have a brother who I don't believe is in a relationship with God who comes at me saying that the Bible is full of contradictions, and what do I say to him? That, that's the question. But the person who submitted the question, he may even be in here right now, also says... I believe even that there are inconsistencies and even contradictions. Now, they explain that in regards to context and that they believe and they think the Bible is clear, but there's still this lingering kind of like, what do I do with some of this stuff that doesn't make sense? So let's deal with those inconsistencies and contradictions. We're going to flip them around. Let's deal with contradictions first. So, so what do you do when someone says, what about the contradictions that are in the Bible. Are there contradictions in the Bible? Let's, let's explain what a contradiction is in the first place. Again, let's define the term. That's real important. You maybe have heard of the law of non-contradiction. 
what is the law of non-contradiction the law of non-contradiction don't let me lose you here we're not going too scientific just just lock in you know wipe the glaze away all right just stick with this is like 10 seconds here the law of non-contradiction is that something cannot be a and non-a at the same time that's the law of non-contradiction it can't be a and non-a at the same time it's okay to be a and b but the law of non-contradiction says it can't be A and non-A at the same time. This is incredibly important. So let's just say someone says, you know, they're, they're describing you, and let's just say that they say that you are tall and smart, right? You are tall and smart. That's A and B, perfectly fine. You can be tall and smart. You can be tall and not smart. You can be untall and smart. I mean, you can, there are all kinds of things you can do with that, right? Untall, I guess short would have been the better English word to use there, right? You can be A and B. Here's the thing. You can't be tall and short at the same time. That would be, contra non, uh, that would be contradictory. The law of non-contradiction says you can't be A and non-A at the same time. What often happens when we deal with someone saying that there is a contradiction in the Bible, often what happens is it doesn't meet the definition of what a contradiction is in the first place, all right? You're not even talking about specifically the same thing. So what do we do with those times, with those passages where someone may say, this is contradictory? Well, let's look at an example. This is the perfect place for us to actually pull out a living, breathing example. So flip over to Matthew chapter 27. I want you to turn there with me because I want you to see this in your own Bible, right? Matthew chapter 27. You're going to take a look at an example of where someone would say, oh, look at there, a contradiction. And you're going to start to wonder yourself, wow, maybe this is a contradiction. I don't know if I can trust this anymore, right? It's not a contradiction. It doesn't meet the terms. Before we read this passage in Matthew 27, I want to just tell you how we remedy this issue of contradictions. Whenever someone says, what about the contradictions? Or when you read a passage and you think, wow, that just seems contradictory in the Bible. It seems like there are two things that cannot exist together. You need to ask yourself this, or ask the person this important question. Ask the text this important question. Is there a reasonable explanation? I hope you'll jot that down. Because the next time your buddy at the water cooler or the next time your friend out at coffee says, I don't know why you go to church, I don't know why you read that Bible, you know it's full of contradictions. They just did a special on it on uh, you know, NBC News, right? Don't, don't you know it's full of contradictions? Uh, well, can you give me an example? Yeah, actually, I do have an example. Ask the question, is there a reasonable explanation here? Let me show you what I mean. Matthew chapter 27, verse 5. The person that's being spoken of here is Judas Iscariot. You know the story. Judas was a disciple for three, three and a half years of Jesus. He ultimately sold Jesus out, turning him over to the authorities to be ultimately crucified. He did it for 30 pieces of silver. And at the end of his life, this is what's being described in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 27 Verse 5, speaking of Judas, it says, And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary, and he departed, and he went away and hanged himself. That was the end of Judas's life. Ironically, we just talked about this on one of our podcasts. I can't remember if it came out yet or not. Someone asked a question, is Judas in heaven? And on one of our recent podcasts, or one that's about to come out, I can't remember. They all run together after a little while. We actually dealt with this question, so check out the podcast. 
But here in this context, we see that Judas's life clearly, I mean, Matthew's very clear. He couldn't be more, more uh, detailed. He says that Judas, when he did this, he ended up going out and he hung himself. Now, we talked about suicide last Sunday. Never would God ever lead a person to do that. I mean, never. It's not the unforgivable sin. It doesn't mean you're going to go to hell if you do that. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you're not. But never would God ever lead a person to do this. Matthew tells us this was the, the end of Judas's life. Now, let's go over to Acts chapter 1, because Acts was written by who? It's written by Luke. Matthew gives us his take on the end of Judas's life. Luke, writing in Acts chapter 1, gives us his take. Verse 18, speaking of Judas, if you read the context of this passage, you'll see it's very clearly talking about Judas. So verse 18, it says, Now this man, Judas, he acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. What a great passage, right before lunchtime, right? <laughs> Two completely different things that are being spoken of here. Two totally different things. Matthew is saying one thing, he hung himself. Luke in Acts chapter 1 is saying, well, his, his version is, is that he fell down, a, down a, uh, you know, uh, the side of a hill or a mountain or what have you, and he uh, you know, ended up, everything happened that he, that he said there. Seemingly two different accounts. What do you do about that contradiction, someone says to you? Ask the question, is there a reasonable explanation? Because the Bible doesn't give us every detail. For me, I have no problem reconciling those two passages together in a very reasonable way. I'm not saying unreasonable. We're not saying some UFO came down and appeared and this happened. And that. No, 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 no. It's reasonable. It would seem to make perfect sense. It would seem to be incredibly reasonable that Judas, who was used as a pawn by the religious leaders, once he sold out Jesus, they paid him his money. They were done with Judas. They had no love for him. They had no concern for him whatsoever. It, it would seem to be reasonable then that Judas, it doesn't tell us in Matthew where he hung himself, it be, could be reasonable that he hung himself in a setting where over time, with the passage of time, either the rope would break or the limb would break where he hung himself. And ultimately, without getting too detailed in the scientific process of what happens to bodies after they've, they've, um, their lives have ended, right, is that when that branch broke or when that, that rope broke, that eventually over time, he did, his body landed and everything happened that Acts tells us there is a reasonable explanation a and b matthew and luke matthew and acts it's not contradictory at all another example james chapter 2 look over in james chapter 2 real quick this one's not talking about an ex something that happened you know in history necessarily it's talking about a specific teaching paul or james is writing this letter here james chapter 2 verse 24 Notice what he says. He says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you know that verse is in there? <laughs> you see that a, that a man, James says, half-brother Jesus, is justified by works and not by faith alone. <gasps> I thought we're saved by grace through faith. I thought it wasn't our works. Well, here's the thing. With, with Matthew's example we ask the question is there a reasonable explanation with a passage like this we ask the question what does it say in context you read the verse in the context of the bigger picture so let's go back a little bit earlier in james's own letter in in, in that very chapter even let's go back to verse 18 in james chapter 2 
Here's what he's saying in context. He says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, right? Two different things. James says, well, show me your faith without the works, which is impossible, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God's one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? What James is saying is that, that if you have genuine, authentic faith in Jesus, that the byproduct of that, the outflow of that, is going to be good works. They're going to be present. There, there's not in existence where a person's life has been changed by Jesus Christ, and there was not good works that followed out of that. Why? Because God the Holy Spirit came to live within you. Your nature was changed. The, the dead is gone. The dead is buried. The new has come, right? It's the natural outflow is that good works are going to come as a result of your faith in Jesus. I mean, guaranteed that's going to happen. And what James is saying is, is that your good works should be present to, to, to prove, to authenticate your faith. He's not saying that, that works save us. He's saying that you are saved by grace through faith. And that if that's genuine, the works are going to be there. He's not contradicting himself at all. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, look at what he says what Paul says earlier, he says, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Bible is not contradicting itself. James is explaining what authentic faith looks like. I used the illustration before, speaking of my dad. If, if, if you look at, a, at a, uh, a passage in context, that is one of the best things you can do. I can make this statement and be totally true in saying it, that throughout all of my growing up years, my dad was in jail virtually every week of his life. Right? And I can be true in saying it. Out of context. In context, my dad was an attorney. So he was in the jail pretty much every week, unless we were on vacation <laughs> of his life. Right? You gotta, you gotta look at that statement in context and when we look at God's word in context what often is claimed as a contradiction ends up just dissipating it disappears when you read it in context when you let the whole book speak for itself listen we can say anything we want if you drag a verse kicking and screaming out of context and also when we ask the question is there a reasonable explanation what we say see often is that those seemingly contradictory passages also begin to make perfect sense ask is there a reasonable explanation and read the passage in context so the person who submitted the question asked what about the contradictions we've dealt with those what about the inconsistencies what about those things that are seemingly inconsistent in scripture so here's the deal with the bible um <clears throat> i think we all probably know this but just as a refresher so god wrote it <laughs> uh we can trust it right that's his word to us but he wrote it through people over 1,500 years, 40 different authors. David was a shepherd. David was a king. Luke was a physician. Uh, Nehemiah was a government official. Um, you got a fisherman. You got all kind of different uh, livelihoods of the people who wrote it. At the end of the day, God wrote it all through them, right? So we can trust it. So what we have today, when you hold the Bible, you don't have the original Paul, you know, Paul's letter, like you didn't, you didn't go and buy your Bible online or Walmart or Lifeway or wherever you may have bought it, and it'd be, I mean, this is what Paul wrote with his own hand. You see his ink stain and his, you know, hamburger grease there. I mean, nobody has the original, 
And, and here's the thing, let me just say, even if we had a single volume hand, you know, written by the finger of God, one of two things would happen. If that was in existence, we don't have any of the original uh, um, manuscripts of any of these books of the Bible. If we did, one of two things I'm convinced would happen. Either, number one, we would worship it, right? There would be people who'd be worshiping it. It'd be in the, in the Smithsonian or wherever, and people would line up to go and bow down to it and worship it, right? Because that's the Bible that God wrote. Or people would kick it to the curb just the same because they don't want its authority over their life. So I think God really has delivered the Bible to us, his word, in the best manner possible. So over years, what has happened is, is that the Bible has had manuscripts, has had fragments that have been found that date all the way back to the earliest days, right? Or up close to when the originals were written. Now follow me on this. Don't glaze over. This is so important. And and when you put together those fragments, you've got over 5,600 fragments or manuscripts, right, copies from the New Testament. You've got over 66,000 manuscripts, uh, uh, fragments, or uh, ancient translations of the Old Testament. Put those together, over 70,000 fragments or manuscripts that have been found through the years that are ancient in nature. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, 1947, I think it was, by a little shepherd in Qumran, they found the entire book of Isaiah, <laughs> uh, a manuscript there, dating uh, uh, very close, right? An early, early date for that manuscript that was found. When you put all those 70,000 together, written literally by people, right, transcribed by people, you are going to find certain instances in those copies where you may have letters superimposed, right? One letter is flip with another letter in the manuscript you may have one one uh, copy that says 400 and other says 1400 right you're going to have those scribal error errors they're called textual variants and you're going to have them throughout scripture i mean it's going to happen over these centuries that it's been written as it's been copied from one manuscript to another you're going to have those but here's the thing here's here's what what we need to keep in mind is that of those variants about 1% of those have make any difference at all in the understanding of the passage. About 1% of the 70,000 manuscripts, about 1% of the variants that you find are going to make every, any difference in the passage. None of those make a difference in any way that's significant. I want to give you an example of this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. Flip over there with me real quick if you would. 1 John chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 4. I'm in, a, I'm in a D group right now, me and three other guys here in our church, and part of that D group is that we memorize a verse. I'll be honest, this sounds horrible, but a lot of times if I'm the one in charge, I try to pick a short verse. <laughs> Full disclosure. <laughs> but what's interesting is, we've got some overachievers in the group, they will not be named, um, But what's interesting is, is that we've got about three different translations when we read it, and every time we quote the verse, it sounds a little bit different. Why is that? Because of some of the variants that are there. Now, I want to give you an example here. 1 John chapter 1, look down in verse 4. Okay, we've got it on the overhead, but I want you to read it in your Bible. This is the New American Standard translation that I use. It says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. How many of your translations say our joy? Let me see your hands. Okay, most of you. 
You can put those down. How many of your translations say your joy? Let me see your hands, okay? All right, there's a few. Does it change the meaning of the passage at all? No, not at all. It makes no difference to that passage. It doesn't teach me anything contradictory about God, about salvation, about who Jesus is, about any of those kinds of things. It's just somewhere along the way, some manuscripts read your in the Greek language, other manuscripts read our in the Greek language, right? And now some translations say your joy, some says our joy. You know what? If we put John down here and say, John, which one is it? Our salvation hinges on this. He'd say, you know what? It doesn't matter. I wrote these things so that all of us would have joy that's complete, you know? One percent of those variants that you read of in Scripture where we would say, there's an inconsistency. One percent have anything to do with changing any of the meaning at all, like this does. It does change the meaning, but it doesn't make a difference. J. Warner Wallace gives an example that I love, and I've used this one before, and I want to use it again. Let's just say for an example, I want to illustrate this. Say, say for example, that I've got some tickets that you and I have talked about to a ball game, and um, we're going to meet up so that you can purchase the tickets. This is what I text you. At least this is what I intend to text you at least. I got the tickets you needed. Meet me at Starbucks on Victory at 4 p.m. Tuesday to get them. All right. So I text that to you on my phone, but autocorrect, don't you love autocorrect? Autocorrect kicks into gear. Maybe my thumbs weren't working really well that day. This is the text that actually went out. I got the tickets you needed. Meet me at Starbucks on Viceroy. I, there's not even a Viceroy in Savannah that I know of at 4 p.m. Tuesday to get them. And I realized, oh, that's not what I meant to say. I meant to say victory, stupid. Autocorrect, let me text it again. So I said, I forgot the tickets, you nerd, All right? So it changes a few things. Meet me at Starcastle. That's a completely different part of town. Meet me at Starcastle on Victory at 4 p.m. Tuesday to get them. I realized, no, that's not. I didn't mean to call him a nerd. I really like, like him. He's a friend of mine. Let me just shoot this one again and uh, send this out. I got the 400 tickets you needed. Meet Starbuck, whoever she is, Tuesday to get them. And then I realized again, no, this is not what I intended to text. Let me just try this one more time. I got the tickets you needed. Meet Starbuck on Victory Tuesday to greet them let me ask you a question do I have your tickets yes where are we meeting what what specific store Starbucks what street is it located on and what time are we meeting are you a nerd that's up to you okay you see that's five texts 70,000 manuscripts fragments ancient translations written by people written by God first through people you put all those things together listen with complete and total accuracy we know what this word says you can trust it it's God's word the bigger issue is not so much can I trust it it's does it hold authority over my life am I willing to submit to what it says and am I willing to be a disciple of the Savior who saved me by reading the word he wrote to me? Those are the bigger issues. You see, you talk about perceived contradictions. When we ask, is there a reasonable explanation? When we read it in context, they sort of go away. When you talk about inconsistencies, yeah, they're going to be maybe a translation that says it one way and a translation that says it another. But listen, we know exactly what it says. We can make sense of it. We can trust it. And it is clear. But do we, apply, do, do we apply it to our life? Do we live by it? And do we seek to share it with those around us? The final principle that I want to give you, and we're done this morning, is one I, think, I hope you'll all jot down, that the Bible is not contradictory except when it contradicts our beliefs, our desires, 
or our lifestyle. And when you sit down to read it and study it or hear it preached or taught and it contradicts your desires or your beliefs or your lifestyle, you've got a huge decision to make. Am I going to conform to it or am I going to push it aside and go it alone? Let me just say, there's only one that brings a fulfilling life. And perhaps the most important thing the Bible does of all is to tell us how to be ultimately even saved from our own sin to where we can have a relationship with the God who made us. Doesn't it make sense if God created us that he would want us to know him? And doesn't it make sense that he would give us something that would span the generations to where we can know how to know him? He does. And it's his word. Read it, study it, be a disciple of, of his Apply it, live it, stand on it, and if you have to, be willing to die by what it says. But be certain above all else that the message of the gospel it communicates that you've responded to by laying down your sin and giving your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the question that was asked. It was a it was a bold question, Lord. It was a courageous one. But Lord, at the same time, it was necessary. Far too many believers don't really know how to verbalize or explain why we trust you, why we trust your word. And Lord, far too often what happens is somebody will read some book that an author wrote for the purpose of already just trying to discredit you or explain you away or discredit your word. Really no hard evidence for that, God. They just don't want your authority over their lives and and then someone a new believer or maybe a believer who hasn't really grown in discipleship hears that conversation or they read that book or they see that tv special and they begin to doubt themselves but god thank you that the word you've given us is trustworthy that it is without error lord as you wrote in the original languages that we can trust exactly what it said and thank you that through the centuries lord you preserved it for us so that when we read it now today we can know what it said we can know what it meant and we can decide whether or not we're going to live by it lord most of all we thank you that the living word jesus came and died for us he gave his life for us live still today that Jesus we can pray we can talk with you Lord that we can ultimately give our lives to you for those here today that have never made that decision to lay down sin and to submit their lives to you Jesus right where they sit today they can do it move in their lives even right now where they would make that important decision to invite you Jesus to forgive and to take over and so God we thank you for you thank you for your love for us thank you for your plan of salvation thank you that you came to rescue us thank you that you give us your word that has, that has survived through the ages God that war hasn't eliminated it the, the greatest minds that have ever tried to explain it away haven't been able to do that and Lord thank you that it is endured and that it's still changing lives today and so God help us to line our lives up under it and Lord give us boldness to share it and we thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name.